You're listening to Amphibicast. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Amphibicast. I want to thank you all for joining me again. It's day after Thanksgiving here, uh, in the U.S. at least. I know outside the U.S. Uh, a lot of you guys don't obviously observe Thanksgiving because it's a U.S. holiday. Uh, last night was a good day for us. You know, we did the right thing. I like to think we did the right thing. You know, stayed inside, just a couple of people. Hope everybody else enjoyed yourselves. Uh, I always, uh, you know, like to enjoy the fact that I'm home on Thanksgiving now before I uh, got into the job that I'm in now. I worked on Thanksgiving every day for 16 years, always missed it. So I'm happy now that I'm home, thankful to be with my family for a change after a long time. Hope you guys are too. And um, today I have uh, Joe from DIY Herps. He's coming to me from the UK and uh, we're going to talk about a couple of things, maybe some differences in the hobby on opposite sides of the Atlantic some of his attitudes towards conservation and some thoughts and insights that he's got, as well as um, some uh, just you know, just some broad stuff. I don't really have much of a script lined up for this episode. I thought it would be kind of fun and maybe a little bit relaxing to do something a little different. So we don't really have a script. We're just going to kind of let things go for a while and uh, see how it goes, and I hope you guys enjoy it. You know, coming up in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to have some pretty, cool, uh, some pretty cool surprises, I think. I got a couple of interesting people on the hook for the show that I hope everyone's going to appreciate. So I hope you guys definitely look forward to that. But uh, in the meantime, let's get into the show. Joe, how you doing? What's going on, my man? Yeah, very well, thank you. Dan, how are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. Like I said, hanging in there. Uh, yesterday, I mean, we're a real small family. We're actually only, it's only just the five of us. So, uh, you know, we kind of made a lot of food. So my daughter says, are we going to be eating turkey for the next two weeks? And I said, yeah. So I, I get <laughs> used to it. So we had, a, we had a 20 pound turkey yesterday, which is, oh, Jesus. yeah, which we only ate maybe <clears throat> Uh, the the between the five of us maybe like three pounds of it so we've got we've got yeah we've got quite a lot of food left over well uh, believe it or not um the supermarket that we go to if you spend a certain amount of money around this time of year uh say you spend i'm arbitrary number but say you spend maybe three hundred dollars you get a coupon for a free turkey because the turkeys here actually aren't cheap so that's the supermarket's way of getting you to buy all the other stuff because they're not going to be selling turkeys that much the rest of the year. But yeah, it's 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 it it gets intense. It's a, it's a big bird. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. So why don't we start off with a couple of things now? Why don't we start with your YouTube channel? You started a YouTube channel kind of a while back, right? How, how long ago did you start your YouTube channel? What was your what was your goal in in the in the original first couple of videos? Yeah, so um, when I was younger, I. I I went to um, a pond when I was really young, about seven or eight, and I just became absolutely obsessed with frogs. When I, As soon as I saw a frog, I just thought, how can such a vibrant Jurassic creature exist in such a mundane world, surrounded by you know, grey tarmac and just buildings, but then there's this beautiful creature from millions of years of, of, of evolution. And I just became obsessed with um, with frogs and always wanted a pet frog and just nagged my parents for ages um to, to allow me to have a, a white tree frog and um yeah it all stemmed from that really as soon as i got my white tree frogs um i went to this cool reptile shop in hull um which is where i live which is in the northeast of england in yorkshire and there's this guy called john paul who was a really cool reptile guy um, quite larger than life to be honest and he sort of inspired me and it just encouraged me to get frogs so I said to him is there any chance you can get white tree frogs and it's an Australian species 
um, frogs aren't very common in England. Not many people keep frogs at all. In fact, personally, I only know about two or three people in my area that keep frogs. Um, there's, a, there's only a couple of shops as well. And he managed to source them somehow and said, no, don't worry. I can get these frogs sorted for you. So he ordered some frogs in and I went and picked them out. And um, really, I just, I'd learned everything about White's Tree Frogs through YouTube channels and seeing people with the frogs. It made me think, oh, I actually want that frog. Before I actually saw it in real life, I looked at YouTube videos. And um, as soon as I got the frogs, I was only about 13, 14. No, probably about 13. And um, everything's new. I don't know if you can remember, Dan, but when you... I mean, but when did you get into the hobby? Um, my first foray into exotics, I would say, I mean, you know, I hate I hate to use the word exotic because now they're really not exotic anymore with so many people keeping them. But uh, with I, let's just say non mammalian animals, uh, non non mammalian non fish, uh, probably around nineteen eighty nine. I want to say I would have been about 10 years old. My, my first animal was a green iguana. And then I ha had different animals with, with, you know, back then everything was wild caught. So I didn't have the, tre the tremendous amount of success that some of the newer keepers have now with all the information and the quality of animals that's out to them. But I, with the exception of a few odds and ends, and by that I mean the odd gray tree frog, the odd, the odd uh, green, or well, American green tree frog. I know in, the, in Australia the green tree frog is the white tree frog. Um, I had a pair of White's tree frogs around maybe 1997, I want to say. I had them in a pretty large vivarium, and that was really, I guess, the first real effort on my part to keep them well, and I had a lot of success with, with those with those two. They, they actually they lived quite a while. I, I think I had them for maybe about 10 years. Yeah, they, they do live... I think 10 years is about the average lifespan, to be honest, but they're quite a hardy species. And, but like like you said, that you you were ten years old when you first got into reptiles and amphibians, and everything is completely new. Um, I mean, I, I'm I'm I run a dart frog group called Dart Frogs UK on Facebook. It's a private group, and when people come with all these questions that experienced people think are quite silly questions and quite obvious, but when you're quite a when you're young and even when you're an adult when you first uh, dabble in reptiles and amphibians it's all completely new and everything's very uh, hard to understand and quite difficult so as soon as i got these tree frogs i was just pestering this cool reptile guy that i got the frogs off uh, just pestering pestering him all the time just calling up just to chat about the frogs oh my frog's on the floor does this mean anything no it'll be fine as long as he's not on his back and all this kind of thing and then I realised um, that what I really want, I was just a lone ranger. I, I was, I loved frogs, but I didn't have any friends that, that were interested in frogs. It was quite a, a niche area of interest. Everybody else was interested in football or what you'd call soccer um, and stuff like that. I was interested in frogs. So I went to YouTube and, and was just showing people my frogs to start with. And it, it started growing. People started commenting on my videos saying, oh, I think, think your frogs are really cute. And then I just made loads of different... I got loads of contacts from the outside world, mainly American people. Not the, My viewers weren't particularly uh, European. In fact, around 90% were Americans, and they really enjoyed watching my videos. 
And it just grew from there, really. I just posted videos every week to try and get more contact from people, made loads of um, friends. Like there's a, a YouTube channel called Caterpillar Giraffe, um, and it was a Canadian lady that, that ran that, and I became friends with her and questioned her about her animals. And there's probably some viewers out there that was on YouTube back um, 13 years ago that would remember that channel as well uh, because she stood out massively at the time. And um, I started doing videos. Uh, I started getting better with frogs as well, especially my white tree frogs. I actually trained them to to croak on demand so I could communicate with them and get them going. It was so funny setting them off, getting them to croak, and then they'd set each other off. And, yeah, they used to croak for food and everything. It was It was fantastic. It was really good frogs, really interactive. But I started uh, expanding into doing how-to videos, uh, and people really responded to that. Uh, they really liked the fact that there was just an average kid from England explaining how to look after animals and how to set up terrariums. They really enjoyed that. And then I just kept doing videos, and here I am 13 years later, and I still do videos on how to do things. Yeah, it's it's interesting you know, what you said about beginners and, and advanced keepers sort of looking down on beginners and thinking that, well, you're asking a stupid question. And, you know, my attitude towards that is that it does take, it does take amount of, an amount of patience that I think a lot of people just don't have from the beginning. Uh, I mean, I'm not a particularly patient person myself. Uh, I try to encourage people who are new in the hobby to do certain things, go in a certain direction. But, um, I mean, despite how I may seem on the show, <laughs> I don't always have uh, the most patience. But again, there are people like yourself who would come into the situation and say, well, you know, obviously you, you do have patience. You're here to provide a resource for people who might also be a little intimidated by going on a forum or going on a board. They can go on these YouTube videos and, and kind of get an idea. And when I got back into the hobby about, you know, about four or five years ago, the amount of information that was available on YouTube was much greater. And I started paying attention to more of the channels. And there were some that I, I kind of could pick out as being better information than others. I'm not a big fan of the, some of the more sensational channels. I understand people have their reasons for doing that. But when I go to YouTube, I want to look at as much stuff as I can and try and find as good as, as quality information as I can. Because I'm, I also, I stay away from social media with the exception of Instagram, which I really just use to shamelessly promote my show. Um, I, I don't get involved in that stuff because I find that with certain, um, certain other media like YouTube, you don't have to necessarily interact with the person. You don't have to worry about the person responding to you with criticism or whatnot. You can just sort of watch it objectively without any kind of interaction and then take the information away from that. You know, whereas with a board, if you ask a question on a, on a board or a forum, there are some people that are going to give you some amazing advice. There are. There's a lot of people who will. Uh, but you can get that one negative person who might just shoot that person down who's already sensitive and feeling insecure about first getting into the hobby, and that might kind of be the death blow for that person. So for me, at least, that's what I got out of YouTube was being able to get good information if I really looked for it, and at the same time not having to worry about criticism from that one or two negative people out there, which can be you know, quite a turnoff. Now... When you, it's interesting what you said about your uh, your white's tree frogs croaking on command. Mine do that too, actually, with a spray bottle. When I would when I would mist with a spray bottle, 
that would get them worked up like almost immediately. And it was, it's, it's funny because people don't credit a lot of these animals with, with, you know, the intelligence that they do have. I mean, I get, you know, you can, you can condition them the same as many other animals, even my dart frogs. As soon as they see me through the glass coming over with that cup, they're on that glass. They're ready to, they're ready to eat. I've actually had it, like I've discussed on prior shows, they'll actually jump out of the vivarium and onto me sometimes, which I don't like because it's, it's obviously they're not, them on a cotton shirt is not good because it's going to be, you know, drawing the moisture out of their skin. But, you know, then sometimes they'll kind of just, you know, it'll be an escape issue. And I, I like to avoid that. So I actually had to change my routine because they got so conditioned to me opening one side because I have an exoterra uh, where I have several exoterras, but I'd open up that glass on one side and they're just like ready to go outside that glass. So I have to switch it up sometimes in terms of opening it up the other side or just kind of putting my hand in and dumping the cup out in an, in the back of the terrarium. So they, they can learn, you know, and a lot of people outside the hobby, I don't think understand that. Yeah. I mean, when, when I was growing up, um, I'm going to create no illusions. I, I didn't have an awful lot of friends in all fairness. I was, um, quite a, I, I tend, tended to just get my head into schoolwork and I didn't really have that many friends and my tree frogs were probably my best friends when I was 13. I know it sounds quite sad, but that's how it was. Um, and yeah, they, they were good companions. They were just, you know, set up my hand, um, they'd, feed, they'd eat so much and it was just nice to connect with them. And it was really sad when they, when they passed away. Um, but I mean, it was, we had a bit, a bit of a weird situation with the frog really, because it got to about 11 to 12 years old. And then when it, when it died, it just spent a lot of time on the glass. And um, I opened, well, my uh, brother opened the, the door of the Exeter and it sort of crawled onto the ledge, almost wanting to be picked up. And uh, my, bro my brother put his hand out. I, I was uh, at university at the time, um, but so I wasn't there to see this, but I actually crawled onto his hand, went extremely green. For, it, was, it was sort of like an olive colour, went completely green, like a bright, vibrant green, and just like stretched out and passed away. It was really, it was more like it communicated through the changing of colour, you know, to say thanks, like, you know, this is me. Thanks for, for looking after. I know it sounds a bit superstitious, but I don't know. I think they've definitely got intelligence, like you say. I mean, it's, 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 there's really no way of us knowing for sure. I mean, I know that like with, with many animals, they have chromatophores in their skin that can change color. I mean, whites obviously can go from a, a brown to a green to sometimes, sometimes a fairly bright, a fairly bright green, depending on the locale. And, you know, I have seen different mood changes with different animals in, um, you know, in different situations, especially with chameleons. I'm not a big chameleon keeper, but I've kept one or two over the years. I know that they're, their mood or so to speak you know would would like my favorite was when they would fall asleep and their sleeping colors would come on and my my bearded dragon does that too and not a lot of people realize that they can have some some degree of color change and you know during the day he has kind of a sandy color and whatnot and then when he falls asleep at night all that kind of fades and he turns a very very almost like a lemon color you know, when he'll get stressed, he'll kind of, you know, his throat will turn black. Like if I have to, you know, take him out of the tank for a bit, he doesn't, I know you, people uh, recommend obviously you bathe uh, bearded dragons periodically to keep them hydrated and get those femoral pores from being clogged. But he doesn't always like that. And he'll kind of blacken up a little bit, but I mean, who knows? It's anything is possible. You know, I mean, obviously for an animal to, to, to pass away in front of your hands is, is not something that people often see in a captive environment because at least in my experience, a lot of the animals that I've had that did pass did it 
secretly or when I wasn't around, with the exception of some um, a couple of dark frogs, which I have seen pass right in front of me. And these were wild-caught specimens that already had some issues that were um, unable to be resolved after the fact. But it, it is sad because I feel like certain species you do form more of an attachment to. Like I, like the, the white tree frogs have that almost... Um, I think that as a species, we are we're kind of predisposed to be attracted to certain things, especially things with almost like forward facing big eyes. Um, they have almost like a, like a baby face. And one of one of my observations, especially just my forays into like forums and YouTubes and whatnot is that, that the white's tree frog community is, um, very, very different from some of the other communities and like dark frogs and whatnot. And I think that it's just that, yeah, it's, it's, they, they seem to be a lot more like lovable. And I think that that's, kind of the way that the community perceives them so it's definitely it, it is very easy to you know perceive the way that they act and whatnot and, and the way that the things that do i guess maybe in a different context i guess they're much easier to connect with because we have more similarities with them yeah 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 100 percent. So i completely agree with that um yeah um the i think um with, with white tree frogs, they're really easy to look after. I'd definitely recommend that. If somebody was trying to get into the hobby, definitely start with a white tree frog. You can't go wrong with that. Um, but at the moment, I'm keeping a red-eyed tree frog. Oh, just going back on to um, just loving frogs and, and frogs dying and stuff. I, I, did, I had a clown tree frog once. And um, as you'll probably know, when you get froglets, sometimes they just don't, they don't grow up. Um, they will just die for an unexplained reason. It's it's a strange thing with um, froglets, really, especially tree froglets. And um, I had one; it, it just passed away. But I'd, I'd seen it on the glass a split second before it was on the floor, and I thought, surely I can revive this animal. So I, I took out the the um, took it out the tank, um, put it on the put put it on the desk, and then just started tapping its chest to give it a bit of CPR, and it wouldn't move. Now, then I actually opened its mouth and, and gave it mouth-to-mouth um, resuscitation. And I turned into the mirror and there was just a frog hanging out of my mouth. And I thought, you know what, I'm taking this hobby too seriously. I shouldn't be having frogs <laughs> frogs um, hanging out my mouth and giving CPR to them. But that's just um, that's just the kind of guy I am. I, I'm really yeah, want I, to look after frogs. I Yeah, I... I... I don't know if I would go to that um, that extreme, <laughs> but, but especially at all I mean, costs. yeah, I mean, plus the, I mean, they're also um, they they employ uh, guller, you know, um, respiration with the the um, almost like the spot underneath the chin. Um, they don't ex they don't expand their their chests don't expand and contract the way ours do. They have that guller um, that guller motion, you know, when you see the frogs kind of that little chin yeah, up, and, up and yeah. down thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, but, um, I mean, what, um, you know, what other species are you keep in besides, besides tree frogs? I know you had mentioned dart frogs before and you, you started a dart frog group about, um, yeah. Which species yeah, are you so keeping? I, I keep, um, red eyed tree, I've got red eyed tree frog. Um, I've also got, uh, Dendrobates aratus, Dendrobates leucomelus. And I've also got, um, a little colony of golden mantellas as well. Um, but I've I've got a slightly controversial uh, thing to mention. Um, I think it's important that I do this. Uh, but I actually bought a Leucomelus and an Oratus and housed them together. 
and this is like extremely frowned upon across the groups and it's mainly because of um, hybridization and mine did actually hybridize and I, I keep um, Leucomelus and Oratus hybrids um, only for myself and I'll, I'll keep them till the day that they pass um, at the moment they're sort of golden they look like uh, golden black Oratus uh, frogs but um, I mean I wouldn't recommend people uh, keeping them uh, together uh, although the the, um, the actual husbandry requirements are more or less identical between Oratus and Leucomelus but it's just the problem with if they do hybridising then you sell these frogs on it could muddy the gene pool if they are sterile I've heard from quite a few people that hybrid hybrid dart frogs wouldn't be sterile uh, that's that is like inter, inter dendrobates, not dendrobates um, tinctorious. Uh, so my little comments on hybrids are don't don't breed hybrids. If you're going to house frogs together, don't house uh, different variations of tinctorious together uh, because they're particularly aggressive and they can attack each other. And also that they will be, if, if they breed, they will be um, fertile, 100%, and that will muddy gene pools and cause some problems. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I'd avoid avoid housing two different species together. Uh, the only reason I did this was because when I actually bought the dart frogs, I was just um, green behind the gills. I, I was um, quite naive at the time. Um, but I can confirm that they did, uh, they, they have lived very peacefully together and ended up being a bonded pair but you just you don't want to do that. I, where I'm from in England, there's not that many dart frog keepers. Everybody knows who I am, for instance. Um, but I know that in America it's very popular. And um, yeah, by all means, do not breed hybrids and sell them on to other people. So that's my little um, anecdote for that. Uh, but I think it's important that I mention my flaws as well as my strengths, essentially. I agree with you 110%. Um, you know, it's very easy for us, and this is one of the things that always sort of bothers me about the world in general, is it's very easy for people to come on to a, a public forum, whether it be, uh, you know, a podcast, a television show, in front of a crowd, whatever, and to go on and on and on about their personal victories and ignore their failures. Now, I mean, failure, like you said, is part of the hobby. I mean, I... I'm very, very adamant against keeping species non, I mean, different species together. Uh, I'm not a very big fan of cohabitation for a number of reasons, which I'm, I'm obviously not going to get into in the show. The general consensus is obviously with the exception of certain circumstances, um, and those circumstances can exist. You, you want to avoid that because just like you said, you don't want to have a lineage of hybrids come into the line that could muddy the gene pool and ultimately just do a disservice to the the species and the hobby in general. And it's not just here. It happens with other hobbies as well. I mean, I, I'm in the tarantula hobby. You get the odd person who, you know, will have a hybrid between like some, I think it's some of the brachypelma uh, species. People are actively hybriding them, uh, hybridizing them, which is, which is extremely frowned upon. But you're right. I mean, the other thing is at the time when you get into a hobby, and especially if you don't have a lot of those resources, you are going to make mistakes. And, Unfortunately, sometimes it does become a trial by fire because you'll you'll have people criticize those efforts and you know justifiably so. I made many mistakes, and I I will talk a lot about species or individuals that I lost. I mean, I'm not talking about hundreds and thousands of species. I'm talking about a handful. But I unfortunately learned too late 
to correct my husbandry methods or, or something to that effect. And I have no shame in saying, look, this was my mistake. Learn from it. That just the same as you are, you know, you, you obviously realize that you cannot keep these animals communally under the majority of circumstances because you'll get just that. You'll get a hybrid. And if you do get these hybrid offspring, you have to look after them because it's not responsible to let them go back into the hobby. So I agree with you. I think that, you know, sharing your, um, your, your, your failures is also just as not, if not more important than sharing your successes. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I think it's, it's mainly tinctorious really. You don't want to be, you know, if you had, um, a tinctorious Robertus with an Azurius, you, you don't want to be mixing them because they could easily breed. They could create offspring that looks very similar to one parent, but actually wasn't. And it just, it gets things, things just get confusing. It's, it's not good. And on top of that, I mean, I've seen a few scary, scary videos actually of um, tinctorious frogs wrestling with each other, but to the point where they actually put the other frog on the back and then lay their stomach over the mouth and, and actually try and suffocate the frog. And uh, luckily on this video, um, another frog of the same uh, morph actually jumps in and uh, stuck up for the one that was being pinned down and uh, by uh, an Azurius. It was a Robertus being pinned by an Azurius and another Robertus came and pushed the Azurius off the frog, which is quite interesting and funny to watch. But I mean, it's very scary to think that there's frogs that are being suffocated by their own kind. It's It really, yeah, with Tinctorius, you've got to be very careful. Yeah, I think that you know, after having many conversations with people about captive care, you know, people like to say, well, you know, this is how it is in the wild. Well, the fact of the matter is keeping an animal in a glass box is not how it lives in the wild. And there are ways to care for things in captivity as opposed to there are a way to, to be a good steward for things that live in the wild. Now, one of the things that I had gone over in, in, a, in a past episode with my episode on cohabbing, which, I, you know, I know some people found that to be a little bit controversial. My analogy was a little bit controversial, but I stick by it. And when you have two animals, even two animals of the, spa- of the same species living in a relatively small environment, you take away that ability for one animal's, you, you take that one animal's ability to leave the situation away. Meaning, let's just say that you, you and I were in, say that you and I were in the same room together, Okay. And then we don't get along. At least, you know, I could open that door and I could walk away and, and leave. That would be my escape route. I could avoid you. In, a, in an enclosed environment like a terrarium, you can't do that. And you have to watch these animals, even members of the same species, very, very carefully. Because sometimes they might get into aggressive behavior on each other and you're not necessarily looking at it. I mean, a lot goes on inside those four walls that you're not noticing unless you're there constantly. I mean, I had... Um, my trio of Epipetobates anthonii, um, one of them had a, a you know a whole big mass of uh, eggs on uh, of uh, tadpoles on the back, and I was like, okay, well I had one deli cup full of that had some more mature tadpoles, and I figured I would see the small ones, the, the fresh ones in the cup the next day. Well, I didn't, and he was still carrying them around, so I was like, okay, maybe I need to put in another egg deposition site. So I put in a second deli cup and lo and behold, the next day, the little ones were in there. So did this frog realize that there were more mature tadpoles in this one cup and that a new deposition site needed to be selected to reduce competition? I mean, what happened? Because obviously I took away that ability to leave that situation and look for another site somewhere else. So I had to recreate that by adding a new site consciously rather than just allowing it to happen naturally. So I I think you're absolutely right that, 
it, it's it can be very very difficult, and it takes a lot of a lot of observation to be able to keep anything you know in the same in, in the same enclosure successfully. But yeah, I've I've heard some pretty wild things too about um, you know, some of the tussles that they'll get into. But it, it is it is I mean, it's interesting to watch. But obviously, like you said, it's not something that you want to uh, you want to actively encourage because ultimately it can end up with one of the frogs dying. Yeah, I think um, there's quite a few quite a few people on. On the group that I run, they they keep Williamsy um, geckos. They're like miniature. I don't know if you've heard of them, but something Williamsy. Um, it's like they're like miniature geckos, and they keep that keep them, and sometimes morning geckos as well, with um, with different species of dart frogs, um, which they can cohabitate quite safely. To be honest, they they never really cross paths. And also, somebody somebody posted on Instagram actually the other day, and it was um, a red-eyed tree frog with um, Tinctorius, which I think it was in a massive tank. I think that that could potentially be compatible because the the Tinctorius are out during the day. They're quite large frogs. Red-eyed tree frogs are sleeping during the day, and then they come out on the nighttime. And I was thinking I had a situation where I was feeding my dart frogs and mantellas uh, pinhead crickets. But if if they don't eat all the crickets, the crickets then hide in the substrate and grow up to be you know two inch long crickets, which can be quite dangerous for the frogs. You know they can attack the frogs. Um, so if you ha- actually had a tree frog in there, it it would eat the overgrown uh, crickets, and crickets can be a lot easier to source than fruit flies. Um, so yeah, it's just a food for thought really. I mean I wouldn't encourage it at all, but I think in in sort of a a zoo setup with constant care that that could potentially be compatible but you're better off just keeping the species on their own and just appreciating them for for who they are rather than the mixture yeah i agree i like to keep members of my collection separate i'm just i've been i've been very very strict and pretty well you know that's my that's my way of keeping them and it's just at the very least you know that you're taking away you're taking away that possibility of that dynamic going wrong in larger terrariums, I, I can understand it working because obviously there's a lot of supervision and there's a lot of space. I mean, there's a big difference between housing, you know, a, a red a red eye tree frog and you know an azurius in a ten gallon tank or a twenty gallon tank than as opposed to letting it letting them coexist in a hundred and fifty gallon tank. Or, or I mean, you guys use the metric system in the UK; you'd be using liters, so. I apologize. I don't really know what the conversion of gallons to liters is. I think it's something like two liters equals a, it's close to a gallon. But um, the larger the enclosure, the more space you have for each animal to sort of you know find its own spot. Um, they wouldn't be competing for little areas of microclimate. Um, might not be com- competing for a water source. Might not necessarily be competing for food. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm I personally am against it. I, I know. Yeah, people, I, I am as well. I, I know people who do it with success, but. Um, they just, they have different methods than I do. And, you know, it's, it can be a controversial thing, but the people I know who do it successfully have very, very large enclosures, which I frankly don't have the room for. And I can't, you know, recreate in this, in the circumstances that I have now, but, um, you know, that's just, that's just me. But, um, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned about crickets before and, um, in the UK, I think you have different species of cricket that then what we use here in the United here in the United States we have two species and I apologize I can't recall the common names but we have the, the, the domestic cricket 
which was the standard for a long time. And then we had an issue with a, a virus that these this species became very, very susceptible to. And a lot of the, the on the farms, they just kind of got wiped out by this virus. And they were also very, very difficult to keep for long term. I mean, if you went and you bought a, a bag of 20 crickets at the local shop, you brought them home, put them in a bin to gut load, maybe fed them, you know, whatever your gut load was. And then once one of those crickets died, the whole thing would stink of ammonia. And then shortly thereafter, all of them would die. So you'd buy maybe if you bought a large quantity, like 50, 60 crickets, and you put them in a decent sized bin or a tote, they'd be dead within a couple of days. So the next species that became available here was the banded cricket, which I really enjoy. They don't quite get as large, but they're not as aggressive. They're quieter and they live a really, really long time. Now, I know in the UK, you guys have some different feeders, but like what's what are, what's the cricket situation like in the UK? Yeah, we, we have the banded crickets. Um, yeah, we, we use uh, banded brown crickets and black crickets as well. Um, yeah, that that's what we use as well. Same Same type. Yeah, I think it's the black crickets. I think that that's what you guys have over there. Because we have certain species that are they, they can't be sold here because they would be considered invasive. But the black crickets, those are the ones that I've I've heard about kind of anecdotally or, or a little bit more uh, uh, aggressive, shall we say. And the other thing that you have over there is is locusts. Now, we don't have those here because we have... Right. Yeah, we have issues with... There, there was actually a, a, a species of, of uh, locusts, which are really grasshoppers, but there was a species of locust that... I mean, wreaked havoc on the the Central Plains states, which, you know, there was a, a lot of agriculture there. And it was one of the few species of locusts that became extinct. And I, I for the life of me, I can't recall when this happened. I think it was during somewhere around the Dust Bowl. I want to say the late 1800s, early 1900s, somewhere thereabouts. But um, if I'm wrong, someone please correct me. But um, I know locust is kind of a dirty word here because of the devastation that they do to crops. But I mean, over there, they're you. You can buy them live over there, right? Yeah, yeah. I think the the main reasoning for that is uh, because it's so cold here, they wouldn't be able to survive. It's not the right temperature for them. Whereas in America, there's plenty of hot places. Um, so yeah, the locusts would just naturally die if it was to be released. Uh, so it's not a it's not a massive problem. Al although we've got um, we've actually got a reality TV show called I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. I have. Um, I, but, I think I have, actually. A lot of the, a lot of the um, reality shows that are here in the U.S. are also in the U.K. Like, going back a long time, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I saw that in the U.K. when I was there in, back in 2000, about a year before it caught on here. So I, I do know what you're talking about. I saw the American equivalent of it. Yeah, the, 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 they have to do all these different tasks, like get crickets and locusts poured over them while they try and find some kind of item it's like it's kind of like a survival task but everybody's um there's quite a lot of wildlife associations and councils in wales kicking off because it's usually filmed in australia but they've had to film it in wales this time um and they're doing it in sort of like a local castle uh, but everybody's kicking off saying well actually some of these species of invertebrates could be invasive and could manage to survive so there's been a bit of a controversy with that uh, but I think, by and large, it's accepted that they wouldn't be able to fry, thrive in this kind of temperature because it, it does get cold and it's never really particularly warm. Um, but, yeah. I mean, do you like do you use them as a regular feeder? Um, I mean, between... Um, no, I, I use just banded crickets. Uh, tend to use the, the banded silent brown crickets. Uh, don't tend to use the black ones. Locusts, 
they eat all the um, live plants within the tank. So I, I try to avoid locusts because you just they just cause absolute destruction within the tank. You're better off with crickets. They won't touch the the leaves, really, whereas locusts will actually just eat all your plants, uh, which is a nightmare. Yeah, I can imagine. I, I don't think I would want that either. <laughs> I mean, they can devastate when they when they turn into locusts, they can devastate so much, so much cropland quickly. I can only imagine what it would do to a planted vivarium. Mm. Now, what, yeah, it caused quite a lot of destruction, to be honest. Yeah, one, one of the things that we we're at least I am is very very kind of covetous of in the United States when it comes to the UK and the um, the continent of Europe is some of the vivarium options that you guys have available. Here we're limited to as the I guess as the average person the the big box stores you can get maybe two maybe three or four different brands of, of vivariums, meaning you know open fronted. Um, vivariums and there's a couple other places that make them independently I know uh, Bill of, of uh, in situ ecosystems he makes a very good product but um, what do you have in the UK because there's a lot of what we call them in the United States we call them euro style enclosures I mean are you using mm. like big box types of enclosures or are you getting um, more kind of like a custom type of deal over there yeah so we have um, a few vivarium makers in the UK one's called DNS Vivaria or DNS vivariums, uh, run by a man called Dale Ems. And a lot of people um, tend to just uh, make orders with him, sending the dimensions, and he'll actually make a Euro-style tank. But I think, by and large, what's available in shops is just a standard Zoomed or Exoterra glass tank. That's the only thing that's available in the shops. But you can get things made bespoke by people in the hobby, and that's where the Facebook groups come in, really. We all kind of help each other out we send each other plants we send each other fruit flies springtails make the variants all sorts of things really um so yeah we just get them made by people in the hobby like dale yeah it's um, we, we do that here to an extent i just i don't think that we do it to the extent that people do it in europe um i mean even the major there's a couple of books that i have that were written obviously not in the uk but i have one that was written in uh, in, in german and the vivariums that they have are all kind of like a custom-built glass uh, enclosures. They have that almost like a little, uh, like a little shelf for ventilation, where it's like a screen. And it's it's almost you can't quite see it without actually having to look underneath it. And they're they're pretty impressive. I mean, obviously here you do have alternatives. You you have places like in situ that can um, provide you with a vivarium that's more geared to the dart frog hobby hobby or the the, the plant hobby or basically what we're looking to do. Whereas some of the big box vivariums are a little bit more generic so to speak meaning you you know you could put you could buy one of the larger like exoterras and put a bearded dragon in it but you could also set it up for dart frogs you just have to modify it so we have but I, that's what i mean is is you know getting terrariums that are more geared specifically towards frogs that require i mean you know obviously almost all species require some degree of high humidity but being able to retain that humidity better i mean like i'll I'll modify the screen tops. I'll cut pieces of plate glass, and I'll block off the screens with with that. I mean, do you have to? Do you feel? I mean, you, a lot of the stuff. Obviously, the name of your channel is DIY. I mean, what what are some do-it-yourself hacks that you would use to modify your terrariums to make them more suited for that purpose? Um, so what I what I did was just get an Exoterra tank and put some perspex on the top. But I, I definitely wouldn't recommend using clear perspex or acrylic because the lights just cause it to warp. So you constantly have to be topping it up with silicon to fill the gaps that have been caused because of the warping of the plastic. So I'd suggest 
um, actually just getting some glass cut. Go to a, a local glass cutter, um, give them your dimensions, cut out your holes for your misting systems, cut out the holes for the wires if you've got sort of uh, waterfall pumps and stuff inside the tank, and just um, silicon it onto the top. I think that's the best way to do it. Yeah, I agree. I the the acrylic route, and again, that's another failure that I I experienced early on was I the the when I moved into my new place here, which was again kind of when I got back into the hobby a little bit more full force. I built a couple of vivariums out of forty breeders. I um, mean, a forty breeder um, for you guys in the UK would probably be. Um, I'm trying to do the metrics in my head, but it, here it would be about about. Um, 36, I think it's a 36 inches by, I think 24 by, I want to say maybe 18 high. So it would be about what, like a little bit less than a meter by about half a meter by about half a meter. So it's, it's a fairly, fairly decent size, but, um, I used, I kind of created my own screen ventilation. I, um, you know, I, I cut, uh, you can buy in some of the hardware stores here a, a kit to fix a, a screen for a window. But if you modify the kit in such a way, you, you, you cut the sections down shorter, you can make a, a screen top for it that only covers like 10%. And the rest I would use plate glass. Well, I was having issues with some of the humidity escaping through that vent screen, which was maybe uh, maybe two inches by 36. So it was a very, very small, um, small screen. And I covered it with a piece of acrylic. Well, within about a month, that acrylic had bowed upwards into this big U-shape, and I was still losing ventilation through that. And that was just from the heat that was coming off of my lighting that I was using. So after that, I realized, I was like, I really can't use any kind of acrylic or, or, or polycarbonate sheeting. And the only thing that worked for me was glass. So I learned how to cut glass, and I got fairly fairly good at it, especially the thin glass. So, I mean, in terms of a life hack, that's definitely one of the things that you want to learn. And I've seen some, I learned it over YouTube is how to cut glass. And if you can do that accurately and without hurting yourself, obviously do it carefully. It, it makes it so much easier than having to deal with acrylic, like you said. Mm, I th yeah, I think that's a, a definitely a, a good skill that you've got. Um, maybe I could work. I, I think there's plenty of videos on YouTube, so I don't think I have to do one. Um, on how to cut glass, uh, but I always thought it was quite expensive to get the relevant tools, you know, to uh, like the drills and stuff like that to cut holes in glass, or or is it quite cheap and easily available? The glass cutter, I mean, if you're going to cut glass straight, meaning if you get if you get a piece of glass that is say one foot by two foot, or say uh, you know sixty centimeters by sixty centimeters, if you want to cut that in half evenly, all you really need is a T square. And a glass cutter. A glass cutter is maybe a, a few dollars or uh, maybe a few pounds. I know that the, the exchange rate's different, but um, it's not that expensive. What does get expensive is the is the, the drilling bits. So if you're going to be drilling glass for a hole, that's going to depend on your skill level because depending on the type of glass, uh, you know, I don't know what the glass situation is like in the UK, but. A lot of the aquariums that we have here are made out of tempered glass, and you can't drill tempered glass as easily as well. You really can't drill tempered glass at all because it'll shatter. Mm. Just shatters. Yeah. Yes, but non-tempered glass, you, you'd need to buy uh, the appropriate bit. And I've seen different people use different techniques. I mean, if if that, uh, me personally, I don't feel comfortable doing that. Um, it's something that I might practice on. I've also had a hard time finding the bits, but that, that would, that would be a bit of an investment and that that's a bit of a process. So if I were to do that, I would, I would bring mine to an aquarium shop and have them do it. 
but just cut just cutting sheets of plate glass isn't that difficult. Um, you can do that for if I wanted to cut a piece of glass, and a lot of times I'll I'll salvage old glass, meaning if I have a picture frame, rather than throw it out, I'll keep the glass. So I have a whole big pile of scrap glass that I'll use to, to restrict the ventilation on some of the dart fragments. So it, it takes some practice and it can be a little bit dangerous. So I wouldn't advise it without taking the appropriate safety steps because um, I've cut myself pretty badly on glass. So it can be done cheaply, but like you said, the, the, the drilling, that's where it would get expensive and sort of labor and, you know, you need to know what you're doing for that. And I would, I wouldn't want to, I'm sorry, I wouldn't want to practice that on uh, a, a new vivarium that was several hundred dollars. I'd rather practice that on something cheap. Well, I, th I think, yeah, I, I think from what you said, what you could do is, is cut the glass to the, just the base shape, like a rectangle, and then use, you could use acrylic sheet um to stand in sort of like a frame above the tank so, so it's like sort of a an acrylic border and that acrylic is really easy to put holes in you can drill that you can melt holes into it. it's really easy and then you could feed your misting nozzles through the the actual border it's hard to explain but um i think that's probably the best way to do it and i i, I probably will do a video on that now that you've mentioned it because i think yeah it's one of those problems that everybody has sorting out the top making it fly proof all that sort of thing so yeah i think that's i'll probably do a video on that to be honest i have done that too actually where i've used a very very thin sheet of acrylic or polycarbonate placed it into a spot because especially sometimes when you cut glass you're off a little bit and if you're off by a few millimeters or, or a few fractions of an inch it doesn't fit right and you will get escapees so sometimes it's easier to cut the plexiglass more accurately lay that down and then place the glass on top of it almost as a weight but i, I still did have issues with the acrylic kind of bowing up in those corners so uh, but the other thing is i've also kind of given up on having no fl uh, fruit fly escapees because that just sort of happens regardless of what i do but um yeah it's 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 definitely a skill that you want to learn in terms of you know modifying your terrariums now getting into the misting systems how, how would you modify something like that for for a misting system besides besides what we just talked about um, what, how, how would I modify a tank for a I mean, misting you, system? You sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, you sort of build your own misting systems, right? I mean, how yeah, would you start yeah. a build from, from the, the ground up? All right. Okay. Yeah. So I've got a few videos on it. Um, essentially all a misting system is, is, um, a unit that would generate enough pressure to push water through a spray nozzle. So you can use, uh, diaphragm pumps uh, that use for, agricultural spraying they put it on the back of tractors uh, to spray fertilizer you can purchase them for around 10 or 12 pounds which is i don't know how many dollars maybe 16 17 dollars um, so it's really cheap to get those diaphragm pumps they can produce maybe six or seven twin nozzle assemblies worth of of mist or you, but the only downside is that they are really loud um, so what i would recommend is a reverse osmosis pump especially 50 gallons per day that that generates enough power um, to generate mist to quite a few nozzles um, all you need to do uh, it's a 24 volt um, pump so you get 24 volt adapter you get the inline fittings that you can use you can do, use pneumatic fittings um, some quarter of inch tube and then you just attach it to a misting nozzle like um, uh, I mean I have my own brand of because uh, I, I showed everybody how to make all these different misting systems. You, you can always use a fire extinguish, 
fire extinguisher as well. I've I've actually converted one myself. Um, you can pump that up to about 150, 160 psi uh, worth of pressure, which is more than most pumps could actually generate. And um, all you need for that is a, a solenoid valve, which opens and shuts when you power electricity through it. Uh, so you, it's like a pressured vessel. And then when you when the power comes on, it opens uh, the tubing and then the water just gets expelled through the nozzle. So I actually have my own nozzle range. It's called uh, Terra Vape by DIY Herbs. I tried to do it for quite cheap. Um, I believe that Miss King, uh, uh, they, they particularly dominate the market. And in all fairness, they are the best uh, brand for misting systems, a uh, uh, Miss King from what I've seen. But here in the UK, it's really hard to get hold of a misking system. It's hard to get the nozzles. And on top of that, it can be very expensive. So I've just created my own nozzle range to sort of help people be able to afford a misting system. Because if you're working um, long days and you don't have time to mist your animals, it's I mean, it's it's nothing personal. It's, it's all about animal safety, looking after the animals, making sure they're getting the right care. It's important that people can automate the systems. So I just, uh, I've got affordable uh, white misting nozzles that I sell. Uh, but yeah, that's that's how you go about making a misting system. Yeah, I, you're right. Mist King does, it definitely does dominate the market here. I, I mean, I was a plumber for a long time before I kind of left that profession. But sometimes, like in the case of the Mist King, it was it was just cheaper for me to buy the kit than it was to go about purchasing all the other products and, and you know, sourcing them separately because I figured, I was like, I've got this thing that works. It's it's quiet. It's reliable. I've had mine for quite a few years. And, um, you know, if just for me, it wasn't, I didn't need to look elsewhere. Um, but I can understand how in the UK, if you don't have access to it, that it would you'd kind of be forced to make it on your own. Um, this, uh, the, the fire extinguisher thing, though, I just I don't know what you guys have in the UK, be, but here in the US, we have uh, they're, they're chemical fire extinguishers. So obviously, I, I wouldn't recommend that anyone do anything with a chemical fire extinguisher because um, we have there, there are different chemicals here that we use to extinguish flames. Like here we have an ABC fire extinguisher and that will extinguish like almost uh, there's different types of fire but that will extinguish pretty much pretty much almost any fire that's small um you know uh, chemical uh, chemical fire uh, an electrical fire etc they're all rated for that so i don't know if you guys have i mean i'm sure you do have like um fire extinguishers that just only have water i would just yeah it's just a plain plain water yeah, yeah. See, here in the here in the u.s we have chemical um mostly chemical so obviously, if you're in the UK, your situation could be very, very different from here in the US. Because like when we pull a fire extinguisher here, it's just like this like cloud of stuff comes out. So obviously, don't anyone you know do that without? Yeah, don't you know, use chemicals. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because that was at first I was like, because I, I remember I saw that and I was like, wait, I was like, what about? And I was like, it has to be water over there. But yeah, it's 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 definitely you want to go with one that has water. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's purely water. This one and. Yeah, it makes good a, a good missing system. I mean, if you've got a, a miniature air compressor, I believe you can purchase one for around thirty-five, forty pounds. But that can pump it right up to one hundred sixty, one hundred seventy psi. That'll last you weeks. So it's quite efficient, really, using using energy. You're not using as much energy as a system. You're not combining as much electricity with water because it is quite risky. It's risky combining water with any electrical products is carries a slight amount of risk uh, so I, I would say it was kind of less risk 
I think it's more suited to um, stuff like greenhouses. You could set up a really high-pressure admitting system for greenhouses outside. That would be quite a good idea. I think practically you wouldn't want a, a pressured fire extinguisher inside your house. It just doesn't look good next to a tank. But I think if you had a big green, like rainforest-style greenhouse, it could work. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, it's with any with any do-it-yourself, you want to make sure that you're doing things, you know, safely and with a plan before you start out. Because, um, you know, obviously, just you know, just as a just as a as a disclaimer, you know, when, whenever we talk about DIY stuff on the show, obviously, you know, this is only for entertainment purposes. We're not advising anyone to go out and do this or that or the other thing because you know people sometimes will hear something and then they'll end up doing it at home with with bad results so you know obviously as always you know as i've said in the past you know use your discretion if you're not comfortable doing something you know find a, a find a professional who is and consult them first always do things safely and obviously you know like i said we're this is this is just two guys talking so don't um, you know, don't go out and, uh, don't try this at home kids. So yeah. <laughs> that's my, that's my, that's my disclaimer, you know, cause I, I, I'd hate to have someone go home and, uh, I mean, like I said, even by cutting glass, I mean, I, I'm my, I, after working with, you know, with, with, with lead and, and, and sharp objects and blow torches for all those years, my hands are basically like, uh, like ragdoll hands now they're like beat up mm. to hell. But I, you know, yeah. I, I obviously I wouldn't advise anyone to go cut glass on their own without, um, being capable of doing that or at least under some sort of supervision because you can get cut, you know, pretty badly. Mm. But so that kind of, that kind of shoots down our whole, our whole DIY, our whole DIY yeah. agenda here. But, um, you know, a lot of this stuff is stuff that people do kind of common, you know, kind of regularly anyway. But yeah. Um, one thing I did want to ask was your, your flute, your, I watched one of your videos about your fruit fly media. And oh, you yeah. had some very, very specific ingredients there. I mean, like hibiscus powder and whatnot. I, I use a very, very simple media. I use just potato flakes, powdered sugar, um, some brewer's yeast, and uh, and vinegar, and that's and water, and that's pretty much my whole media. But yours is a little bit more complex. So, do you want to share us uh, share a little bit about that with us? Yeah, sure. Um, there's been plenty of scientific research to show that uh, paprika can actually uh, increase uh, the fecundity of um, of fruit flies and and also the frogs um, that that the fruit flies are fed to. Um, there's been studies uh, based with the the strawberry poison frog Ufaga pamilio. Um, they fed it a diet of um, fruit flies that had been gut loaded and media that had paprika in it and different um, high carotenoid ingredients and um, that's why i use hibiscus powder and paprika within the medium um main the, the to be honest i think the be one of the best mediums out there is the rapashi superfly it's fantastic um it produces loads of flies i think it's a great product it does cost quite a lot in the uk i believe it's quite affordable in america but um in the uk it's really expensive so i try to give people just a, another alternative um, for the people that don't understand what carotenoids are, uh, it, what they are is just uh, these pigmentation particles uh, that are sort of orange and red in colour, depending on the different car carotenoids. So there's alpha carotene, beta carotene, and these come out 
uh, when the frogs ingest the fruit flies, they actually assimilate these pigments. And it comes out in the skin colour and it also helps them reproduce. They're really important with frogs. Um, so, yeah, that's why I use hibiscus and paprika. But a lot of that uh, inspiration came from Rapashi because Rapashi, being the, the great company that they are, actually um, name all the ingredients on the back of the the fruit fly tub. So there's, you can see quite a lot of the ingredients similar to my DIY videos. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting though. Um, Rapashi's Superfly, it, it is expensive here in the U.S. So for my collection, which is not huge, but it, it's it is much more cost effective for me to make my own media. But I do add some odds and ends. Like I do add, I do add paprika uh, and cinnamon. Uh, that was the, uh, but the cinnamon I really add for mold control. But um, the the paprika I do add. I've I've heard different things. I've heard that it will enhance color in red species. I know that Rapashi makes a product, which is, I think it's called Super Pig, which is designed to increase the red pigment in, in certain species. The funny thing is, though, like my collection's in a basement, so I don't get a tremendous amount of natural sunlight in there. So I'm kind of like blind myself. So if it is having uh, an effect on any species that I have that has like red coloration. I'm not necessarily picking it up with my eye anyway, but I, I have heard that before. The funny thing, another funny thing is apparently I'm the only person who says carotenoid instead of carotenoid. I think it's a New York thing right. because every, <laughs> everybody here, it's funny because, um, we, we were talking about accents before we got on the show and you know, mine, I kind of like to tone down or at least think I tone down for the show and just the way that we pronounce certain things here, it, it varies. And it's funny because I find myself pronouncing things completely differently. So I, I need to I need to start getting in that habit now of saying carotenoid. But it's it's funny because we the way that we, we speak here, like even the way certain like toys are marketed, like my kids are watching a commercial for uh, a toy. It was it was about a dog that got that got wet. So it was called it was called soggy soggy doggy but the thing is most people would pronounce it as soggy doggy in other parts of the united states so i'm like what does that mean like soggy doggy i'm like that doesn't make any sense and then i realized oh the way we pronounce things here is extremely different from the way people pronounce things in other parts of the uh in other parts of the country so it didn't make sense to us but all right i accept i accept full responsibility for my um my stupidity in that way but um now how big is your collection like are you making a lot of cultures to supply um, a large yeah so I've, I've got i've got um five mantellas no actually i think i've got six i've got six but i only see five uh, at a time so i don't know if that's the same with your uh, some of your collection but you, you see like you never see them all out at the same time you get like four or five popping up and then one will be missing and then you'll see another set of four or five um, so yeah i've got six mantellas i've got those two um, controversial Leucomelus and Oratus hybrids, um, which just for everybody's information, they're not being released, they're not being bred, they're purely being kept within my um, my house essentially in a in, in a tank. Um, I've got the red-eyed tree frog, so he doesn't need fruit flies. He he lives on crickets, but um, so there's there's uh, four four hybrids and six mantellas. So there's ten frogs, um, so I do have to produce quite a lot of fruit flies. I think I have about maybe six containers worth of fruit flies um constantly um cycling through every every few weeks uh, so I, I i usually make a couple of cultures 
give it a week, make another couple of cultures, give it a week, make another couple. And then when the, the first set of cultures dries out or whatever, I'll just make another, I'll just keep recycling it and make, allowing it to sort of uh, retain a, a good level of flies. But it's always a nightmare if you run out of flies and then you've got to buy some in and wait for it to mature. And you've really got to get on top of it, really, and make sure you've, you've constantly rejuvenating your, your fruit fly cultures. Yeah, I, I always live in perpetual fear of having multiple cultures crash. It's just that's one of the things that makes dog frogs so stressful is the fact that your feeding supply, <clears throat> um, you know, can be decimated due to bad weather, excessively dry weather, uh, excessive cold, or even excessive heat. I stupidly I left some of my cultures on a surface that got warm, and when I opened them up, maybe about a week later, I had all flyers in my hydea, and I was like, "Oh man, I, was like, I can't release these things. I'm gonna have to start over again." So I ended up ditching like the two cultures that I had there. But so I mean, we're kind of winding down here, but before we wrap up, I know that you wanted to kind of touch on some of the attitudes that you have about con- about uh, conservation, I and mean, you want to kind of get into that before we wind down. Yes, please. Um, yeah, so a lot. I think um, the the guy that was talking about Mantella's really educated person spent time in Madagascar, and he's been involved in loads of different uh, conservation activities there. And it was interesting what he said because he was saying the focus needs to be well. From what I can remember, the focus needs to be um, working in the field and that actual field conservation. But I'd like to just give my thoughts on on how I think uh, the the dart frog hobby and keeping frogs in captivity and in zoos on display is actually very beneficial to conservation. And the reason why I think this is because I rely on the saying, give a man a, uh, sorry, give a, man a fish, uh, it'll feed him for a day, teach a man to fish and it'll feed him for a lifetime. And I think if we can display frogs in such a beautiful terrarium with all different types of species, show the public via YouTube or zoos or or Instagram, if we can show people these these beautiful creatures, we can capture their imagination and we can drop a, a nature bombshell into their minds, amaze the people, and it will change attitudes. People res- will respect wildlife more. Uh, I think that's what it that's what it's all about is encouraging the love of animals and that will reflect into field conservation. And that's that that's basically my uh, take on it. I agree. I think that there's a lot of issues out there when it comes to um, people's attitudes towards the natural world. And it really does run the gambit. And, you know, this show is by no means meant to be like a referendum on all the issues. We touch on some things from time to time. But I agree with you that having species in captivity and allowing them to be an ambassador almost is, is a very, very essential function because let's just think about the world in general. You're going to have somewhat of a bell curve. You're going to have people who are very, very adamantly involved in the natural world with animals. And then you're going to have this majority of people who are kind of on the, you know, don't really bother with it too much. And then you'll have a very, very small majority who just don't, who hate animals, which is whatever. That's how you feel. It's how you feel. But I think that at the top of that curve, or not really at the top, but at the bottom of the, the second bottom of the bell, um, at the second side of that bell curve, if we can be good custodians of the, the animals that we keep and use them in a way that is not exploitive and not, detriment, not, not detrimental to their survival in the wild, 
we can be good ambassadors. And you're absolutely right. Showing someone a beautifully colored frog, or even a frog that's not beautifully colored, it doesn't always have to be that way, although it does help. You can definitely influence people into it, even if they think about it for a few seconds. Even if someone who does not like animals or does not care about the natural world on the daily basis that someone like you or I or other people in the hobby would, they might think about it the next time they are out in nature. You know, maybe exactly. Yeah, the next yeah. time you go out and you know, like I, I have a problem with people throwing trash around and that person might say, oh, you know what? Listen, I saw these beautiful frogs at the zoo or at my friend's house or, or something like that. Is it maybe what I should maybe I shouldn't throw this on the ground. Maybe I should put this away because at least I'm doing my best to kind of help along the thing that I saw. So even if someone thinks about it for a couple of seconds, you've at least made some sort of an effect on them. But you know, we're also we're also held to a higher degree of accountability, you know, because there are a lot of people out there in the hobby who uh, don't do the right thing. And I know that it's it's hard to say what the right thing is, but I think that if we want this hobby to continue, we're going to have to police ourselves and, and maintain it in a way that's responsible and sustainable. So, I mean, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, it's all right. No, no, I think you, you definitely, you're right. Um, it's all about policing ourselves. But the, the, um, the, I just think we have such a profound impact. You, you are just keeping a frog within a glass tank within your own house or within your shop or whatever, but you are having an impact now that we've got social media and you can share all your setups, you can share your animals with, with other people online and even just characters in the trade, like where I'm from in Hull, there's not that many um, shops. There's, there's one, um, there's one called Kletter and Tyson. There's a guy there. He did a zoology degree. His name's Connor Reese. I think he's got an Instagram called C Reese reptiles, but he's a really intelligent um, zoological minded person he's done desert trips in america going herping and he's a really cool interesting guy and he he's dealing with the average people going into a shop saying that they're interested in, in owning a frog or a reptile and he's making a difference because he's changing attitudes and there's this there's this new um shop that's coming out um just what i was talking about earlier about the the guy that inspired me to get tree frogs john paul i mean at the time he was sort of I think he was still a student and just working part-time. But I think if he wasn't in the reptile trade, it'd be a scientist or, or a science teacher or some somebody of that kind of profession. He's an extremely intelligent guy. And is if you actually look at him, he's, he's a really interesting character. He's, um, he's like if you crossed a scientist with a bushman slash hippie slash somebody that's just gone into a rainforest built their own log cabin, lived there for 10 years and come out. That's what John Paul looks like. He's a really cool guy. Um, but he's set up this uh, really amazing shop and he's going to be re recreating the Nile in the front of the shop. So he's getting like a desert substrate and he's creating like a river, um, a river terrarium that's going to be like open top so people can see uh, the creature that he's keeping in there. And he's keeping something like a, an Egyptian Urim, Egyptian Euromastix. I don't know if you've heard of it, but I have. I like have. A, yeah, like a huge, a huge Euromastix. Like a, it's more or less a Euromastix on steroids, but it's completely different to this the standard one that you see in the trade. It's a beautiful creature, and he's going to be having that on display on one of the main high streets in Hull. And I just think is it is also encouraging because of his experience with me and seeing my YouTube channel. 
and my and me giving my thoughts to it is I think it's going to create a social hub within the shop so people can come in, speak to people that are like-minded. And I honestly believe that that will have a butterfly effect in, in conservation worldwide. And I think everyone should be keep keep doing what you're doing. Give yourself credit for the, the impact that you're having in your area and the wider world. Yeah, one thing, the, the last thing I want to add, which actually just kind of came to mind right now, is that when people get together, especially in especially in, in person, because, you know, sometimes when you're in an online forum, you might not necessarily say what you mean or mean what you say. But at the local shop that I would go to from time to time, and here in New York, we're still having issues with COVID. So I, I try to not get out of the house that much. But when you get together with someone, you not only are you talking about the animals, but you're also talking about the new regulations. And here in the US, we do have, I mean, contrary to what people think, the the, the trade is not this wild west there are a tremendous amount of regulations here and justifiably so. So the other thing is you might go and catch up with someone and say, hey, you know, how are you doing? Oh, by the way, did you hear about the new regulations? No, no, I didn't. Well, let me tell you about it. And then, okay, I can maybe go on a website and find out a little bit more. But that's also another way of policing the hobby. And it's not just so much as people, you know, wringing their hands and trying to figure out how to get species or, or individuals that they shouldn't, which obviously does go on. But you know, getting together and talking about these things in that context, uh, context rather, like like you said, having it as a hub, that does create an opportunity for people to get together. And a lot of that conversation is going to be about new regulations. And just that in and of itself is a good way for the hobby to police itself, because then you know, oh, hey, I had I had an idea about getting this. And then someone says, well, no, you can't get that anymore because of such and such regulation. Then you're going to think to yourself, OK, well, I'm glad you told me, because obviously I didn't want to do something that would have been um, you know, uh, not uh, legal or whatever, because sometimes I'm sure things happen without people really being aware, but that's not an excuse. So ultimately, yeah, we, you know, we are responsible for, you know, I mean, I'm responsible for what happens to you just as much as you're responsible for what happens to me in the hobby. So yeah, it's only, it's, 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 it's heavily, it's heavily regulated in the UK. Um, cause we, we're not allowed to um, sell frogs remotely unless, unless it's uh, by an animal courier so you can't actually send oh sorry courier so you can't you can't actually send it through the the mail uh, but I, I believe you can in america um so you can't send we have to have we actually have to, have to personally deliver frogs and also with pet shops they have to have a pet shop license that animals are inspected by vets it's it's extremely regulated here we have. I'm not. I, I don't know 100% of the regulations because they 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 vary sometimes by state to state and on a federal level, and they change almost every day. Here we uh, the the general consensus here is that there are like uh, Fe, I don't know if you guys have FedEx in the UK. I know they deliver worldwide. Yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah, uh, FedEx. I believe I believe has an animal delivery almost like a division. I think it's called like reptiles something something. I think it's FedEx. I'm sure anybody out there who ships animals in the United States knows what I'm talking about. So I apologize if I'm if I'm in error, but generally shipping will be say maybe like forty dollars or fifty dollars for like uh, overnight or like next day shipping. You'll get a heat pack, and then you you don't want to ship stuff United States Post Office. In fact, most people won't do it anyway because there's such a lag in the in in getting an animal there. Years ago, I did have animals shipped to me through the U.S. Post Office, and they arrived like a week after they were supposed to, and they were in poor condition. So you you do want to check out, you know, who your vendor, is, uh, who your shipping vendor is. 
I've never received anything other than FedEx, possibly possibly U.S. Post Office. I, I don't know if UPS, which is United Parcel Service, I don't know if they do that or not. I, I don't I don't ship anything. I, I don't sell my animals. I don't do any of that. I just I will order stuff and receive it. And generally, I've received stuff through FedEx. That's that's pretty much the standard here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. As long as, long as nothing's been actually put through a letterbox and just left. Uh, I mean, if it's if the package is being delivered with a heat pack and it's being kept the right right way around and not being tossed around, I don't see any problems with that. Yeah. Yeah. You. I mean, m- most if you're dealing with a good vendor here, and there there are many good vendors, and I've had a lot of them on the show, and uh, I've you know, uh, I've had, um, you know, Travis from TCS. I've had Alex from, um, frog daddy. I- I've had Bill from Insitch. I've had quite a few people here who, who deal with either dark frog products or dark frogs themselves. And, you know, th- they want to get you that animal in good condition. They want to get you that product there in one piece. They, they, they want that. So I'm sure there's people here who are shipping under like negative conditions, but you shouldn't even look for that. I mean, dude, pay the extra 40, 50 bucks for proper shipping so that you get the animal there alive in a timely fashion, healthy, not stressed out instead of going with some sort of questionable, you know, secondary type of shipping, or I don't know if people just take a frog and stick it in an envelope, lick the envelope and stick it. I don't know. I don't know. I hope no one does that, but yeah, cool. All right. Well, listen, I want to thank, uh, I want to thank you for being on the show. It's been very, very enlightening. And if they want to look for your YouTube uh, channel, how would they how would they look for it? Just go on YouTube and look for DIY Herps? Yeah, it's just uh, youtube.com slash DIY Herps or DIY Herps in um, American, in an American twang. But um, yeah, I've got Instagram as well, Facebook page, DIY Herps. Um, and also, I'd like to give a just a shout out to John Paul again, the, the crazy jungle man that he is. Um, so he's setting up JP Exotics. Even if you're not from England and you won't be using his shop, follow that page anyway because he's a really interesting guy and he's going to be uh, posting a lot of things. This is a man that's extremely educated and dedicated his life to reptiles and amphibians. Um, so, yeah, give a big shout-out to him. <laughs> good stuff, good stuff. All right, man. Thanks again for, for doing it. It's been a very cool episode. So, listen, everyone. Yeah, really I- nice to meet you, Dan. It's been really fun talking to you. I, I, I very rarely talk frogs because obviously there's not many people here that really keep them so it's been really nice talking to you oh absolutely it was a real pleasure to have you on the show man absolutely so oh thank you all right everyone thanks again for listening we got some good stuff coming up i hope you enjoy the rest of your thanksgiving weekend what little is left of it and i'll catch up with you guys again soon 